Welcome to another episode of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'm incredibly grateful to have you here, and we have another incredible guest for you. If you're someone who's into being a high performer, if you want to get the most out of your life, whether it be yourself or people you're inspiring, whether it be people you're coaching or teaching or even leading your family, this is going to be a great podcast for you. Michael Gervais joins me today to talk about his new book, Compete to Create, which is established from a system he created with coach Pete Carroll in the Seattle Seahawks organization in the National Football League. Michael Gervais did an incredible job of creating the system that was so effective in creating the Seattle Seahawks rise to glory in the NFL and winning the Super Bowl and competing again in the Super Bowl against the New England Patriots. And uh, the system is absolutely incredible. And I think one of the greatest advantages I garnered from this conversation was that they really ask people or encourage people to build strong relationships, to support the people around you. And to do that is sometimes a very challenging thing, right? You have to see the good in everyone. You have to see the upside in everyone because ultimately everyone has a strength. Many people have weaknesses, but as humans, we tend to focus on weaknesses, don't we? You know, and bodybuilding is a great example. You'll see the best six bodybuilders in the world on stage in the first call out at the Mr. Olympia, and everyone's looking at, oh, what are they? What are they off? What part of their body isn't developed? Rather than going, wow, they're incredible. Like, look at all the work they've put. In. Look how much muscle they've got. Look how lean they are. Can you imagine the amount of time and hours and sweat that went into this? And rather than that, people are like, oh, small calves, oh, soft hamstrings. It's interesting, isn't it? And that's just an analogy for life. And I think if we learn to start looking at the positive in others, we can start lifting them up and going, wow, you know, you're really good at this. You could probably help us with this. And if I help you with that, then we can all work together and flourish together. That's a big part of the system that Michael and Coach Pete Carroll have developed. One thing I loved is talking about developing your personal philosophy, which we get into a lot. Michael also talks a lot about seeing your vision clearly only when you can look into your own heart can you begin to see your vision clearly. And I absolutely love that. Can you and I ultimately articulate our guiding vision? What is that thing that is pulling us? What does success ultimately look like? And then ultimately creating buckets for each area of our life. So whether it be work or relationships or personal interests or physical body or finances, what do those actually look like in the end? That's a big part of the conversation, a big part of his book, which I'm going to suggest all of us head out and get uh, just, you know, a phenomenal book. Before the podcast, I managed to read a good part of it. And then afterwards, I was so encouraged to continue to finish the book and got, gets into a lot about precision of language, which I really love because when you're communicating with other people, one of the biggest failures in our society, in our community, in our personal lives is the inability to communicate, particularly with expectations, right? Sometimes the fear of communication is a big hindrance for a lot of us. I know I've suffered from that in the past and probably still do at many levels. The inability to ask for what you want or ask for what you need and ultimately clearly state expectations. And that's the only way you can succeed. Anyways, without more rambling from me, I want to give a shout out to our sponsor from today's podcast, which is Blue Blocks. Blue Blocks, thank you so much for continuing to be amazing. Put out incredible products. I'm sitting here wearing my Blue Blockers right now because you guys, if you see me record these podcasts, oftentimes I'm sitting here blinking because there's so much blue light coming off the screen. And as soon as I put my Blue Blockers on, that goes away. And I really want to encourage us all to see the value or see the implications of strong 
eye health and not beating your eyes with this constant exposure to blue light and just high amounts of direct light into it. So one thing you can do obviously is get outside and take a peripheral view and take a really wide gaze. But when you're inside and you have to be at the screen, it's so important that you cover and protect your eyes, guys. So check out blueblocks.com slash muscle intelligence, and they're going to hook you guys up with 15% off anything you want site-wide. And they do worldwide free delivery, which is incredible. So you guys can head over to blueblocks, which is B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com slash muscle intelligence, or just go to the site and use code muscle for 15% off. Absolutely incredible products. Thank you so much for Blue Box. Thank you so much for being here, listening to this podcast. Thank you to Michael Gervais. And don't forget to read his book. And when you do, head over to Amazon and leave them a review because that's ultimately what drives business and allows people like this to continue to live their greatness and continue to put out incredible information for us. Thank you and enjoy the show. Michael Gervais, welcome to the podcast, man. It's an absolutely a pleasure. As I said, I've been digging into this book and I absolutely love it. And uh, I'm very grateful for you for having taken the time to write it. Thank you for being interested and thank you for sharing the idea that you're enjoying it. So well, man, I'll tell you, everyone's writing books. Sorry to cut you off. So everyone's writing books and everyone thinks they have something to say. But this one is, in my opinion, going to help a lot of people. Dang. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about the intersection between science so standing on the giants of great researchers, you know, in the field of psychology, but then there's something special that happens in on the frontier. And so it's that mixture between science laboratory meets the frontier and innovation. And that's the intersection that hopefully we we're sitting at. Yeah. I mean, you're very blessed to work with some incredibly high level athletes and that's a testament to your credentials, your experience and your ability to get a result. Right. And obviously you, you and coach Carol have come up with this framework. And I think, from my perspective, even having read the first two chapters of that point, I was like, you know what, people need this because I think one of the, the limiting factors in people is they don't have clarity on, on who they are and where they want to go. And it seems like that's really what you started off this this framework with is, is like, hey, we're going to help you develop your personal philosophy. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Uh, first is a note, which is my experience is that most people are looking for some shortcuts some tricks some tips, you know, something, some sort of tactic to help them. And that was the pressure from the production company or the people that were helping us write this book or imagine is like, Hey, get to the short little snackable stuff. And the pushback is that's not how this really works. It doesn't work. Yeah. And so, you know, it went, I've been fortunate enough to spend time with tip of the arrow across multiple disciplines, you know, hall of famers, MVPs, but in, inside of business, people that are really shifting the way the world works as well. And it's a fundamental commitment. It's a fundamental way that you organize your life. And so we, we said, hey, we should start with the truth. And the truth is when you spend time with people who are exploring their potential, they've made a fundamental commitment to do that. And they organize their life, their internal and external world around that. And one of the big rocks to get in the container is to know exactly who you are. And so what does that mean? It's a bit like saying to an eighth grader, you know, maybe when you were playing sport young, it's like, hey, just relax. It's going to be okay. But where's the tool? <laughs> like, how do I relax? Okay, I'm glad you just noticed that I'm nervous, but that's not helping me at all. So we, we wanted to double click under everything and say, this is how you generate or begin to generate a working philosophy for yourself. Yeah, awesome. So just kind of winding back before we get into the personal philosophy thing. So you're seeing these people who have the, who are you know at the tip of the spear who have this internal desire to ultimately push themselves. Have you seen anything that's correlated with with 
you know, what sets those people apart as far as maybe characteristics, beliefs, identity? Uh, what are those things that you have identified that allows a high-level performer to separate themselves from the pack? Because you're working with hundreds, if not thousands of people in your life who, and, and there's the good and then there's the great. And have you kind of been able to identify like that, where there's that one little secret sauce? I wish there was. And in, in the field of psychology and sport and performance psychology, you know, we think about like, is there a golden thread? that binds those who are extraordinary at what they do. And we can't find it yet. Maybe, maybe we'll, we'll figure it out, you know, as we have better research. But at this point, there are a couple characteristics that I want to highlight and note, but research hasn't said this is the one or these are the three. But there is there are a couple that are worth noting. One is, like I was saying earlier, a fundamental commitment toward potential, toward a mission, towards something that is so gripping and compelling that they wake up thinking about it. They're in hallways thinking about it. They're in their car driving, thinking of, like it's so gripping. That saturated. Well, that's, that's actually really important is that now if we double click under that, we're talking about passion. Okay. So it's this blend between passion and purpose. So let's do the science of purpose first, and then let's kick over to passion because there's a misguided understanding of passion, but to do it right purpose, the science of purpose has three components. One, nobody can give it to you. It has to matter to you, personal meaning. And then if I double click under that for just a moment, Harvard did a 75 year study where they examined people that for 75 years, longitudinal study, and their examination was about fulfillment. So they, at the end, they said, okay, who was fulfilled and who was not? And what are the characteristics of those who had a fulfilled life, report having a fulfilled life? One of the main findings was those that reported being fulfilled wrestled with the big questions of life about it. So it's not that they knew their purpose, but they wrestled with it. And those that wrestle with it certainly would have a greater chance of actually being attuned to purpose. So let's go back upstream to purpose is that it has to matter and have meaning to you. Second variable is that it's bigger than you. And then the third, it's down the road, meaning you can't achieve it today. Big life purpose can't happen today. It, it has a future orientation. Backpedal one is that it's bigger than you. Backpedal another one is that it has to have personal meaning to you. So those are the three components to purpose. When you go upstream and get your purpose right, now passion is so much easier because you start to sort and organize your life in a way that has purpose. And when something has purpose, there's a life, a fire that breathes into it. And that's what passion really is. Passion is not the outcome of doing the thing that you naturally love doing. That's the mistake of passion I was referencing earlier, is that many people think, well, I'm passionate about playing the guitar. I'm passionate about being in the gym. That's not how this works. That's the lazy way of uh, the lazy approach, if you will, of living a passionate life. But the real mechanism is that you figure out how to live with passion in every aspect of your life. And then you're aligned with your purpose and then you've got that inner flame, that passion aligned with purpose. Now that's really hard to put out if you're thinking about the flame. And let me double click under passion if, if you allow me to one more time. Passion is very difficult to live with because of two culprits, fear and fatigue. Okay, so when people are tired, when they're over-conditioned and under-recovered, or they're over-stressed and under-recovered, is that it's really hard to wake up with a zest and a pop and a zeal and a vibrance about yourself. 
So fatigue is one. And that's why I know that you spend a lot of time thinking about the mechanisms of recovery and getting that stress recovery balance you know, dialed in. And it's, it's actually, it pays more dividend than just the outcome, performative outcome. It pays dividends to life vibrance as well. The second is fear. So when people are in a state of anxiety or anxiousness, and as, as a clinical psychologist, anxiety means something different than to me than maybe most people do, but it's, it's considered a mental disorder. And I don't say that lightly because it sounds so toxic, if you will, like a disorder. But really what that means is that it's a disordered way of using your mind. What does disordered mean? It's like the opposite of a healthy way of using your mind, which is a really interesting framework because we use our mind. And if left untrained and unexamined, our brain dictates our mind and our brain's dictum is survival. That's it. And if we try to oversimplify this beautiful relationship between mind and brain, mind and body, is that we have the opportunity to condition and train our mind, the software that governs and interprets how the body should respond. And so it's a beautifully delicate, interlocking, multifaceted, multidimensional relationship between mind and brain. And if left unchecked, brain wins. And that, that's substandard to those who are wanting to pursue potential. Gosh, that's so much impact and that makes so much sense. It's just, this, I've, been, I've been kind of speaking about that recently, this idea that most people are allowing their brain or their mind to be created by the world around them. And it becomes this reactivity to the, to the whirlwind of life. And rather than like you say, uh, if you're waking up every morning and you're fatigued and you're lacking the passion, sometimes it's just a result of giving yourself the permission to take a step back and, and take a foot off the gas and apply the brake a little bit and do those parasympathetic activities to be able to come back at life after three days or two days or whatever it is with that renewed zest and that renewed vigor and make that your default state, right? If, we, if we're pushing the, the gas pedal down too much, the default state becomes I'm always trying to grind. I'm always stuck in the grind. And then I'm always, like you say, anxious and, and almost it becomes the state of I can't do this because I'm too tired. And that becomes your default. Well, you're right on the money here is that you think about why, okay, on the, on the world stage, and you well know this, we're not talking about working hard, right. like 99.5%. There's always the freaks. They're ripping whatever, eating pizza and burgers and jumping 42 inches and have a, you know, 4040. Like there's always freaks. Right. And the rest of the elite, you know, performers look at them like that dude's a freak. <laughs> and then, but for the most of us, we're not talking about working harder because let's take, for example, in the NFL purpose, while people are in the NFL purpose is really crisp, you know? So every Sunday there's a purpose, there's a, you know, there's a season's purpose and it's really crisp and people know that that purpose is bigger than themselves so that we need each other. So then relationships become part of the DNA of ecosystems or teams or cultures that do extraordinary things. And then to your point, it's not about working harder because now if I'm that person over there is relying on me, there's kind of a, a check and balance system about hard work and everybody recognizes intellectually, you got to work hard to get to the special places. It is about intelligent recovery. Now I'm not suggesting though, that recovery happens to your point every three days I'm saying thin slice recovery. It's a day-to-day -day rhythm. It, and when you get skilled at it, as I know you recognize, it is an hour-to-hour, a minute-to-minute -minute approach to life. And so I don't want to freak people out, but the old model that I just need two weeks of vacation and I'll recover then, that's flat out broken. Right.
right? And so it is more time sensitive and we've got some technology that can help us, but there is no greater feedback loop mechanism than your own body and your own mind. And unfortunately, that is so miscalibrated by so many of us because we're over distracted and saturated by the external noise around us that we find it difficult to get to the signal. So psychology can work from this framework, the signal to noise ratio, SNR. It's typically an engineer's term, but the signal is always in the present moment, Brian, as you recognize. And the noise is the internal chatter that we all have and kind of work need to work through and the external noise uh, in our environment that pulls us from the present moment. Fantastic. Now, you mentioned in there the value of relationships, and I don't want to gloss over that because you said in your book that was one of the things that really drew you to work with Coach Carroll. And one of the things that was really unique about the ecosystem you had created with the Seahawks and potentially with the college teams previous to that. Can you talk to us a little bit about what his secret sauce was? Like, what was it there that, you know, relationships are, as we see with the climate of the world right now, relationships are probably our biggest struggle as human beings, right? We all lack a relationship with ourselves. We all don't ultimately love or even like ourselves in many instances. And I think that prevents the bond with other people. But I'd love to have you talk about what he's done in that culture to allow the Seahawks to be such a successful organization. Okay, you're speaking the language that I like to talk about is the value of relationships. And you know what I love about the Seahawks, what we're doing up there is that in the NFL, it's a rugged culture. It's a hardened culture. It's an alpha competitive environment. And when you ask, if you're asked Coach Carroll or myself, like, what's the culture? Any of the coaches or athletes up at the Seahawks, we'd all say the same thing. It's a relationship-based organization. Really? <laughs> so you got a bunch of alpha competitive, you know, six foot five, whatever, grown, competitive, dominant human beings talking about the value of relationships. So, yeah. And so relationships need watering. They need work. And it begins for us with an unconditional positive regard for the other. And that takes a deep attention and a deep care and a compassion and an empathy and a want. And almost like we, we talk, we learned this from Bill Russell, one of the great competitors of all time comes in to talk to us. We talk, he was talking about the, what, what it means to be a great teammate. And so if you think about teammate as a corollary to relationship, that's cool, but it's so safe to say, I want to be a great teammate. It's almost transactional. What sits underneath of it is a relationship. And he says, this is how I wake up. And this is one of the greatest winners of all time, Bill Russell. He says, when I wake up in the mornings, when, I was, when he was competing, he says, first thing out of bed was, how can I be a great teammate too? And then he'd go through the, the names of the people he wants to be a great teammate too. That's a relationship. That's far greater than saying, like, how can I just be there when they need me? Or how can I just, you know, something is something, something. How can I help my other community members be their very best today. And then if you double click under that, underneath that one more level, the relationship with yourself, to your point, Brian, is paramount. So the way we think about relationships is that through relationships, we become. So you're through your relationship with yourself first, then with others and with mother nature, you are the constant iterative nature of becoming potentially your best self in this present moment. But it is through relationships we become, and then there's this concentric circle, this pebble in the pond ripple effect that takes place. And we are holding each other to our highest standards to be that man or woman that we know we potentially could be. How do you deal with potential? You got to get to the insights. You got to get to the brilliance and the flashes 
of what is true and beautiful and good and amazing and syncopated. You got to see that in yourself, embrace it, know it, and be in a community where other people can spot it. And that's probably one of your geniuses in your community is that you're able to see potential in other people, hold them to that standard. And what we do is we, we pull on that thread a little bit and we say, hey, listen, let's have a conversation about what, what I think is possible for you. And then the athletes go, okay, what do you mean? And you say, well, what do you think is possible? And they go, well, let me come back to you, right? Sometimes people need some time for that. But then I've already got this idea based on my disciplined approach to watch and observe without judgment and see if I can see sparks of brilliance. And then that becomes this calibrated conversation that we have to say, if you did that more often, where do you think that would take you? Oh, that's the mechanism that sits underneath what potential is. So it's not this imaginary thing. It's something that has been realized and then saying, well, what if that was more consistent? What would you feel like? Where would that take you? What would you be like? And so that's how we get to the mechanisms of potential. So do you have a process when somebody comes in? I'm guessing you guys get, there's a turnover, there's a churn of players. If somebody comes in, I'm sure they don't have, you said something to the effect of unconditional acceptance of, of, of the other players and of the team and trying to lift everybody up. And I'm sure you have players who come in who don't even have unconditional acceptance of themselves. So do you have a process of, of like, hey, here's kind of what we go through to create buy-in or, hey, here's how we, we teach you to start looking. And you say this eloquently and brilliantly in the book is like, kind of just paraphrasing what you just said, is everyone inside of them has a spark of genius and brilliance and teaching us as individuals to see that in everyone else. I think that, I mean, that would be an incredible way to change humanity, not just a system of a team, right? We could just look at everyone and, and see in every child, in every other person, like, yes, there's a spark of brilliance. There's a spark of genius. How do we help them develop that and, and flourish? Okay. So there's two parts to that. One is like the how, and then the mechanism, like an onboarding or integration. Let's start with that. How for just a moment is that one to have that unconditional positive regard for other also requires you to have deep focus and a non-judgmental approach to being able to observe and catch those brilliant moments, you know, that are, are part of somebody's potential. And then how do you train deep focus and non-conditional approaches to observation? Mindfulness. So mindfulness is also sits right underneath the mechanism to help people flourish. So what is mindfulness? It's one of the ancient practices, 2,600 years. Yeah. Um, as you recognize, modern science has ridiculous findings about brain changes, neuroelectrical changes, behavioral changes, psychological impacts that are notwithstanding amazing with, with a, a, a pretty small amount of practice, actually, we start to see some real changes in brain and both structure and, and form. So we, we begin with some mindfulness as part of the you know mechanisms to help people do that. But to get to the onboarding process is there's a phase at the beginning of the season where there is a teaching and that teaching begins before there's movement, really. That, that teaching begins first from Coach Carroll to the coaches then from the coaches to the athletes, and then from the athletes to the field, right? And so that's an easy way to think about like a season, the beginnings of a season, and then the athletes on the field is kind of the actual season. And that coaching or that, that learning phase is thoughtful. There's a design to it, and it has three structures. There's the, the knowledge about technical aspect of the game, the physical aspect of the game, and the mental aspect of the game. 
And there's only three things that we can train as humans. We can train our craft, our body, and our mind. Best in the world are not leaving one of those up to chance. So why should we? And the training of the mind is the one that actually is kind of lagging behind in many environments, which means that it's one of the great competitive advantages. Mm -hmm. Have you met anybody on the world stage that says, oh, yeah, yeah, the mind stuff, that's whack. That is so overrated. It is... (laughs) Who cares about the mind? We're all looking for that 1%. If you tell me that meditation and yoga is going to get me 1%, I don't care, or a half a percent, I'm going to do it, right? And I think yeah. anyone at that high level is going to buy in. And I think that's it's actually probably more like a delta of, I'm going to be kind of bold and say something uh, like 6%, you know, sure. maybe even up in the 10% yeah. range. Yeah. You know, and mindfulness, so so let's talk about the the psychological aspects. It's invisible. This is the challenge. Psychology is invisible. How do we know it exists, though? Because we see the artifact of well-attuned psychology and edgy, shitty psychology. Like if your internal system is whacked and, and buggy and patchy and easily uh, uprooted, performance is not consistent. Wellness is not consistent. You know, frustration, intolerance, anxiety, depression, addiction are all part of the fractured nature of your internal experience. And certainly that has consequences across your communities. Mm-hmm. So if it's invisible, we know it has impact. How do we work with the invisible? Okay. So mindfulness is one of them and we can get into the tactics if you want, but most people know what mindfulness is just like most people know what good nutrition looks like. Apples and apple pie, which one you tell me. Right. No, got Single ingredient foods, right? Right. Like if you put an apple and apple pie out on the table, who Depends in your, how many hours of practice I've had, right? <laughs> but who in your community doesn't know right. th- th- like which one's health and which one is like tasty, you right. know, or whatever. I mean, both are tasty in different ways. So same was with psychology. We know mindfulness is, is one of the core pillars. You know, what's another core pillar? Optimism. And you know what happens here is when we say the word optimism, you know what people think? Oh, here we go. We're getting into the soft world. These dudes don't have neck tattoos. They don't understand what scar tissue is about. They don't, you know, like, oh, optimism. Right. Optimism, when you do the research, is at the center of mental toughness. You know what mental toughness is? Doing the hard thing longer than you think you can do it, longer than maybe other people can do it. Right. Mental toughness, staying in it when it's not going according to plan, staying in it when you're holding your teeth in your hand, staying in it when it's difficult as mental toughness. So who are the most mentally tough? People that have big purpose. Because when purpose is big, it trumps pain. But when pain is big, bigger than purpose, pain will win. So you got to get your purpose really big, and then you can deal with much pain. But optimism is one of those other mechanisms. What is optimism? A fundamental belief that the future is going to work out. I think you could probably sell people on the idea of like, I know many, many, many pro athletes have that negative self-talk just kind of perpetuating in their brain. And if I could just get rid of that, would that be interesting to you? Because I know most people are, are their own worst enemy. It's just like the spiraling loop of chaos and doom that just perpetuates mo- not everyone, but many. Okay. If I could help you get rid of that, would that be interesting to you? And there's so many facets to how you speak of improving that kind of stuff and the optimism and the mindfulness. And that does come into conditioning, right? That does come into like, what does your aerobic fitness look like? What does your health look like your body? People don't draw that correlation, but there is the physiological and the psychological components. And, uh, you know, here's, if you oversimplify psychology, there's two main buckets, self-discovery and skill building. 
And so on the self-discovery, that's where it starts to feel, that's like philosophy building, purpose building. It starts to get like a little, I want to say intangible. I, I want to go back to that, but it's it, it lacks some shape for many people. We know it's really important. But on the skill building side, the mental skills, psychological skills, that's training. That's sets and reps. And just like you do sets and reps for squats or whatever, for a different aim, most people are not trying to be world-class squatter. There's something else they're trying to do with that ability to move big weight quickly. There are some people, obviously, Olympic lifting, that's that's part of their aim. But all that being said is there's sets and reps. Optimism is a set and rep training mechanism. And so if you want to become more optimistic, great. I want to share a story with you. Most people don't know they want to be optimistic, right? Because cynicism and pessimism has kept them safe. Yep. And I'm a big fan of this thought that what got you here is not going to get you there. And I want to share a, a story. This was early in my career. It was a tops gymnast, which means one of the top 10 in the country. And her and her mom come in for some work. She's got obviously some OCD. Now the parents don't, the mom doesn't know that the kid doesn't know it. And so about 15 minutes into the conversation, this was early, early in my career. And it was like jumping out at me. And I didn't, I was like, oh gosh, this is simple OCD. And so I asked the, the kid to go outside for a minute and I had the conversation with mom and mom is astute and she's in it. And I said, okay, so here's what I'm seeing. And this, this, and this are actually symptoms of a thing called obsessive compulsive disorder. And she goes, oh, I thought maybe. And I said, yeah, but you know what? It's actually, there's some really good science to, to help work with this. And mom says, oh, beautiful. And I said, how do you think this is helping her, the OCD? And she says, oh, I actually think that's why she's so good. I said, okay, so if we work with the OCD and your, and your daughter becomes healthy, she might lose some of her stuff that yep. makes her so great on beam and bars or whatever. Mom looked at me, terrified, white sheet, and says, okay, thank you. Got up and left. So it wasn't that dramatic. But the idea is that sometimes neuroticism helps people get to a certain performative place. Mm -hmm. And that neuroticism, a little bit of narcissism, a little bit of OCD, a little bit of anxiety, this perfectionistic nature, this scratchy, edgy worry about what other people are doing will get you to the pros. It'll get you underneath a bar. It'll get you underneath uh, tension and duress long enough that you're going to get some adaptations. But that might not be really what you're looking for now. There is a way to be healthy and have high performance as part of your, your world. That is possible. We used to believe that health ended where perform true performance began. That is no longer the case anymore. We know better now. And so what the best in the world are showing me right now is that the model that most of us adopted, that we need to do more to be more, we need to do the extraordinary to be extraordinary is broken. And so we need to flip that model on its head is we need to be more and let the doing flow from there. And that's where we get this extraordinary flywheel output where, what does that mean though? We need to be more present, be more authentic, be more grounded, be more creative, be more expressive, be more curious. Be, be more authentic, I think is a big one too, right? Like living your, your purpose. Like that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Be, be you basically, and let the doing flow from that place more consistently. 
And again, there's a flywheel effect where the output is ridiculously better. And so we found, you know, the fear of what other people think, FOPOs, as we call it, fear of other people's opinions is one of the great constrictors of human potential. So and, it's funny, you speaking about gymnast and the mom, ultimately, I think you just replicated my story as a professional bodybuilder. It's like I had all of those things and I had the inner dialogue that that's what propelled me to where I got to. And yeah. I realized like, God, this is terrible. Like, I hate this. And I was my own worst enemy. And, and you know, it, but it was also what got me to where I am. So speak to me about. Or move on to that is that let's say that you are coming up the ranks and you are a contender, but you haven't quite got to that place yet, but you're kind of in that second tier in the first tier a little bit, you know, and someone yeah. were to say to you, Hey, every kind of the way that you're using your mind can be better. Okay. And you go, yeah, yeah, I want better. I want better. I'm about it. And then that, then you say, but wait a minute, you want me to actually not think about my competitors? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I want you to do. I want you to focus on like being great inside of you, you know, and not care about what they're doing. Wait, wait, wait. You want me to not have any kind of that anxious buzz that like actually it's a little tiring, but it actually gets me out of bed because of that worry. Yeah, that's right. Wait, you, you want me to not think about money and recognition and fame. And you want me to be more concerned with the arcs of personal growth and development and rapid iteration. You can still think about money and fame and all those things, but like have a, have a bigger rock in the container that's about growth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, how do I do it? Well, you're going to actually have to sit <laughs> and write and listen to yourself and mind do mindfulness. You're going to need to be in conversations with wise people that are far better at the inner life than you are. And they're going to tell you things you want to hear because truth is hard. That's your big work. So No, no, no. I just want, I just want to get back to the gym, dude. Yeah. To, you know, like, well, so I think there's a fine line between OCD and intentionality, right? When you speak of mindfulness, it's like OC, my OCD could have very easily been transferred into just be intentional, right? And then, and then realize intentionality can turn into growth rather than having to be obsessive. And uh, I'd love for, for, you know, assume what you just said right there was literally, you're talking to me, man. So mm. what does that look like to, to start that process of, hey, I'm right here on the cusp of greatness, but I didn't quite get there because I, you know, what got me here won't get me there. What are my steps? Like, you know, is it, is it building the personal philosophy? Is it identifying all the things that I need to do objectively, intentionally every day to move me toward my goal? What are the steps? How do I get out of my own way, basically? That's a life pursuit, one. Okay. So self-discovery is a life pursuit. It's not once you write down your purpose, it's it forever. You might put some real work into it and water it over time. And it feels really good for the rest of your life that can happen, but it is a life pursuit of valuing the inner life and understanding that the interior has like a 10 X impact on the exterior, the external world. I want to give you an analogy and share a story with you is that the analogy is that I want to say there's no steps, and I, but I don't want to be a jerk about this. Like there's yeah. no seven steps to whatever, right? But there are some things that you can do to kind of walk you towards better clarity, more internal, robust frameworks. And so it's a bit like the Panama Canal, like that interlocking dam system that it works together. And if there's a glitch in that interlocking thing, the, the tide doesn't rise properly to get the boats to be able to go across the, the dam. So I think the canal is a nice example for how the internal and external worlds work, but it also holds up as a metaphor, the internal world, because if you've got a really strong philosophy, 
You've got clear purpose in your life. You understand the mechanisms to work with for passion, meaning fear. You're working on the fear level. You're working on the fatigue level, but you're struggling with confidence. Okay, so now we got a hiccup in one of those damn arms. And confidence is part of the skill stuff, sets and reps. Confidence comes from one place and one place only. And it's what you say to yourself, but that has to be credible. So let's just say like, this is why the seven steps don't really work is that if you're doing all this big lifting and you've got this little tiny, small thing called confidence that you struggle with, well, we've actually got to go in and get that thing right before the other stuff can work well. Because you got purpose and all this stuff, you talk a big game in your living room. And then as soon as you get on stage, you start to unwind a little bit because your inner dialogue is more focused on what could go wrong rather than this is a step on my purpose. And my purpose is much, much larger by definition of the science of purpose, much larger than this outcome on the platform or whatever. So let's now, I want to share a tactical story that I think will help you in, uh, will help you and in, in your audience in this quest for clarity on steps. Michael Phelps coach, Bob Bowman was on the Finding Mastery podcast. And he says, let me tell you a story about Michael. He's works harder than anyone I know, but he's using his mind in a very sophisticated way. And he does a lot of mental imagery. And one of the ways he does imagery is that he doesn't only just see success. So to do imagery correctly, it's not just seeing an image, but it's inhabiting the way that you want to experience a future state. So you're using all of your senses and you're bringing them to lifelike experience, lifelike levels. And that is a skill. Okay. So we need to build those skills to do that. But then he took it a step further. And this played out beautifully in his 2008 gold medal collection experience where in training, he was seeing his goggles fill up with water on purpose by design because he wanted some what if scenarios. What if my bathing suit ripped off? What if, what if, what if, what if I miss a corner? What if my goggles were to fill up? And he spent time, not just checklist thinking, but inhabiting it. And so he would see his goggles fill up and then like, that's a distracting thing. How do you adjust to it? And he played that over and over until he had a mechanism in his own mind of what a successful alternative route would be in that moment. You know what happened in 2008? Goggles filled up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now if we stop there, the naive approach to the mind would say, see, if you see it, it happens. That's not how this works. It's not that simple, right? Just if you see a red Porsche in your driveway, you're not going to get a red Porsche one day. Okay. Those laws of attraction, like it's much more complicated than that. But the point that I want to make is that he had an alternative pre-prepared familiarity with something that could happen. He was that conditioned and dedicated to his purpose that he was spending time seeing himself and putting himself in difficult situations. So the difficult situation might be one of the interlocking Panama Canal systems that you got to pay attention to. Do you get to the edge of your comfort zones every day? And those comfort zones, as you recognize, Brian, are not just physical. The true difficult near panic experiences for people are emotional, not just physical. Because the physical goes away. You get your CO2 tolerance and a difficult, scratchy, you know, you get the brandicanase and and lactic acid levels at a really high level. The shit goes away. You know, you're breathing hard for whatever, like it goes, your heart and your 
internal system know how to recover pretty well. And so, yeah, maybe you'll have some doms a couple days later, whatever, whatever. Okay. The real hard stuff is emotional work. And the beauty of that is it's available every day to get to the edges of emotional comfort. We call it vulnerability. But vulnerability and courage, it's the same coin, just different sides. You want to be courageous? You got to get good at vulnerability. How do, so, yeah, please. How do we access it every day? So I don't, I don't know, and I could be wrong, but I don't know that people with these emotional challenges, is it arriving every day on a, on a consistent basis or is it something that kind of situationally rears its head? It, okay, so let's go back to your intention, the word intention. When you wake up in the morning, one of the core practices that I have is I wake up and I've got four things that I do. I'll share those four, but I want to get to the one of them is I have a very clear intention for my day. And it's not like goal setting. What am I doing today? That is mechanical, right? That's like a computer can automate that. You've got calendars that you can just plug in, but what is my intention? And so I take a moment to use my imagination to say, how do I want to be as I cross different thresholds throughout my day? And that's what an intention is. So to your point about intentionality meets how do we practice vulnerability, let's say, this emotional piece, is that, and everybody's at a different kind of playing field for how good they are, skilled they are dealing with emotions. And one of the great ways to practice emotional vulnerability is to say things that are difficult to say that require a vulnerable nature and openness and start with people that you love and care. Like say the things to them that are difficult to say and then just wait, have a pause and wait in that difficult, silent moment to see how they respond. And they might cry, they might laugh, they might shun it, they might step over it, they might look at you sideways, they might do like lots of responses. And then you've got a second opportunity to practice that unfolding, unpredictable, unknown moment. How do you respond to their response? That's practicing. And so I'm practicing that every day so that my well is deep. I need to make a commitment to the people I work with that my emotional reservoir and depth is deeper than theirs so that when they rattle at level, let's say that there's a hundred levels to depth. If they start rattling it at level 45, well, I got reservoir. I can still be with you and sturdy and compassionate, but if I can only go to 40 and they drop quickly to 45 and they're rattling, I'm a mess. How am I going to do my work? when I'm scared in that moment with them and I don't know what to do. That's a great metaphor, especially from, from a family or a leadership perspective in business. Um, you know, the, the leader is the unshakable one. I'm sure this is Dr. or uh, coach Carol is, you know, when shit starts to hit the fan, you talk about this in the book right after when he just lost the Super Bowl there in, in the final seconds, how uh, he just made that conscious decision that like, I have to support my, my team. And that's just yeah. like his ability to withstand the emotional hardships. I mean, to look over at him. So I was on the sidelines for that moment and the whole stadium, I don't know if you watched that game. I did. Yeah. The whole stadium was on their feet, electric. The neurochemistry exchange that was happening was outrageous. It was this dramatic run we were on where we were down, fighting back, clawing back. And from a series of miraculous turn of events and catches and plays by our quarterback and Jermaine Curse, you know, our, one of our receivers. And it was just outrageous that we're on the half yard line. And the whole stadium was for sure betting that we're going to hand the ball to one of the great 
running backs in the history of our game, Marshawn Lynch. And guess who also thought that was going to happen? The defense. Bill, Bill Belichick. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. If you knew that you've got your one of your strengths, just one of them, and their strength matched up, do you go head to head in that moment? Most people say, yeah. yeah. Right. And then and then there's the intelligent ones that say, well, what are the odds? What if you knew that we were one for five running the ball on the half yard line and they brought out their 400 pound alpha, largest humans you can imagine. And we were one for five for running from that line. Would you bring out your running back? And you're going to bring out something new. You got to bring out something new. Mm-hmm. And so even if that had an embedded risk in it. Yeah. And so there's people right now that watch the game. They're like, no, you got to run the ball. Would you run it if you were only 20% successful? You know, would, would you really run it? And so anyways, it didn't turn out the way we hoped. <laughs> and the ball was turned over in dramatic fashion on the half yard line. The eruption in the, in the stands were outrageous. Yeah. My heart dropped and I look over at coach Carroll. He's probably about 10 yards away from me on the sideline and he's on his knees, not on his knees. His hands are on his knees, kind of that yeah. classic coach stance and his head drops. One, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. His head comes back up. He stands up and it was obvious he felt everything. And then talking to him later, and we talk about this in in the Compete to Create book, is that the thought he had is, I got to be there for my guys. That's a beautiful testament to leading and being about it. So it's not like glossing it over like, ah, damn it, or blaming. How could you? It was And not getting stuck in the feeling of pain because it was right there. But you know what was right there? The next unfolding moment. There's no guarantees for anything. There's no guarantees that we're going to ever see each other talk together, each other again. There's no guarantees that your community members are going to be safe tomorrow or today. You know, like there's no guarantees, which for me is a beautiful practice of the fragility of life. And that helps me be more present in the places that I'm in and the people that I'm with. And so I love the chance to be able to talk about something that's hard. It's such a testament to Coach Carroll's integrity and his uh, character, right? Like, I mean, no wonder the guy's a championship coach because most people are at that point don't even have the ability to focus on anything other than themselves. They go into this negative spiral of, whoa, me, I did this. I'm going to lose this. You know, I'm going to get ridiculed. I'm going to get fired. Such a testament to someone who goes, you know what? I'm secondary right now to this unit. And that's why the unit's been a, a success. Yeah. And, you know, he's walked the walk and talked the talk, talked the walk as well. And he's had his ups and downs. He's had his challenges. He's been fired plenty of times. You know, he's had difficult experiences he's had in his life and he's done that self-discovery work. So it's not like, oh, that woman or that man is born with high integrity, high character. No, no, no. There's some work they've done. Some of my favorite people, Brian, are those that have gone through recovery. They've gone to the bottoms. Mm -hmm. You know what? They did the internal work. And there's a beautiful sensitivity when people do this internal work. It's compelling. You want to be around them. Some of my least favorite people are dry drunks. (laughs) You know, the the drunks that are just not drinking, but they're (laughs) the freaking mess. You know, it's like, well, you know, the righteous dry drunk, (laughs) you know, like, oh my God, I share that tongue in cheek and sure. if, you're dry, if you're if you're a dry drunk I, I got compassion for you too so what are you doing right now during this incredibly 
unusual situation to help support your 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 team, your tribe, to sustain through this emotionally challenging time. We need each other. Sport has taught us a couple of things. The extraordinary is never achieved alone. So we need each other. And even individual athletes, there's a team behind the team behind the team. And it's a community effort. Now, when you go on to the platform or whatever it is, like you are alone, but nobody does it by themselves completely. You know, so we need each other. So this is a beautiful time to double down on who are you, who are the man or woman you want to be. Let's just get really clear on that work. And then let's get to know our other people really well. Because what happens for most teams, whether they are the Seattle Seahawks or the Compete to Create community or the Finding Mastery community and your community, Brian, is that if we're going to go do something together and we got a shared vision, that we tend to lock arms in the confines and the safety of our locker room, whatever that is. Sometimes a living room, boardroom, or, or locker room. We lock arms like, yeah, let's go. And then you know what happens when it gets hard? Somebody doesn't like it and they unfray. They pull their arm out. So we know that to go to that special, rare, thin herd space and place, we need to stay locked in and locked together. And so that's why mental toughness and optimism are so important. And that's why knowing who you are and knowing those that you're locking with is so important so that you end up getting into this nonverbal, shorthanded communication style that only... Uh, you, you don't have the eloquent opportunity to do long form communication when there are quote unquote live bullets. And I do the quotes because I have a special place in my heart for warriors and there is nothing like the battlefield of war. And I haven't been there, but I, I mean, I understand it from the people that have shared their stories with me. Sport is not war. Lifting is not war. Gyms are not war. We are not warriors. They are. And we don't go to battle. Unless you want to say that there's an inner battle, okay. You know, battle the battlefield is very different. And I get the metaphors. It makes us feel energized. But I, I just want to never have a irreverence to those who truly experience live bullets and the casualties that come with that. So back to where I was going is that know yourself, know others, and then be connected to the psychology that will help you, which is optimism, confidence, purpose, deep focus mindfulness, and then all the recovery mechanisms in place on a consistent basis that will help you be able to have that zest on a daily basis. Where does the, the term compete come into this? So I, I've heard Dr. Carroll, or he's saying doctor, but Coach Carroll speak in the book a little bit about his competitive nature. And uh, is it a constant competition with yourself that we should all be striving for? Yeah, it's really cool, Brian, is that Coach and I, we're trying to figure out a name for our business. And so it was two months before our first Super Bowl. And he comes out of his, his office and we're up at the training center. He goes, Mike, can you feel the energy that's in this building? I was like, yeah, 100 alpha competitors pointing in the same direction. And he says, do you think anyone outside of sport would be interested in this? And he was talking about business, you know? And we're like, let's just write it down. So back a napkin, we're writing down his practices, my practices, our shared practices to create a culture and to create the strategies to train the mind inside that culture for individuals. And back in napkin, we shared it with uh, some folks in the enterprise business. It caught on like wild fire. And Microsoft was our first client. They're now up to like 40,000 of their employees spending eight hours a person training their mind from our system. And so about, I don't know, <laughs> we've got about maybe 
5,000 clients and we need a name of a, a company. <laughs> and so we're on a whiteboard and we are not marketing people, you know? And so we're banging around for, you know, hours about the name of a company that is true and meaningful. And so there's a kind of this moment of frustration, which is like, all right, coach, what's your favorite word? He goes, you know it, compete. He goes, what's yours? I said, create, compete to create. There it is. So what does that mean? So that became the title of our business and also the name of our book. And the title, let's double click under there, compete. His personal philosophy is always compete. And if you think about competition, you might be misguided by what the tone of that, or the origin of that word is. The origin of the word is to strive and strain together. So it is an internal process that is works in tandem with others together. We're straining and striving together to be our collective very best. And thank goodness you're on the other side and refining your craft because that's going to help me learn where I'm weak and strong and how to get better. Okay. So the misguided notion of competition is that I'm straining and striving to be better than you. That's going to fall short. It'll work for a little bit. It'll fall short in the long haul. In this path of mastery, it will fall short. Now, the word create is born out of my philosophy, which is every day is an opportunity to create a living masterpiece. And so that is, I think, one of the beauties of being human is that every day we can create a living masterpiece. And that the canvas is life and you get to choose how you want to paint it. That's beautiful. So, yeah. So, so cheesy and so true. Uh, yeah. I, I say that all the time. You know, I said every day you wake up as a blank canvas and you can choose to, to put on there what you want or someone else is going to come on and, and write all over your canvas. If you let them, right. They're going to tell you what to do. They're going to teach you how to live your life. They're going to impact your consciousness and your thoughts. So it's so powerful to wake up every day with an intention, as you say, with a, with an objective, having a routine to, to create your mind and take that mind with you to the world. Can you walk us through just really quickly before we wrap up? creating that personal philosophy because you had some really good, useful guidelines. I'd love to have our audience understand because it seems like such an integral piece and you, and you narrowed it down to like, hey, it should be this really short descriptive word about who I am, what I do and, and how I can condensely articulate it in 30 seconds or less. So first I want to say thank you for the space for letting me riff. And, wow. you know, I want to say thank you. I appreciate that, Brian, because I came in this conversation like a, I don't know, like, on fire a little bit, you know? So I, I want to say thank you for, you know, creating the space for me to roll. And on that note, a philosophy is not, it's not some of this highbrow, sophisticated thing. It is stripped down to what are your guiding principles? What are your unwavering principles? And those principles are meant to, to shape your thoughts your words, and your actions. So for Coach Carroll, it's always compete. So that is a drumbeat that is ever present for him to compete to be a great dad, to compete within himself to be a great coach, a great friend, a great lover. You know, so so that's that's how this works. And his is super simple to see it that way. What was Dr. King Jr.'s philosophy? It was about equality. How do we know that? Because everywhere he went, his words and his thoughts and his actions were about it. Malcolm X, same thing. Mother Teresa, loving kindness. The Dalai Lama, Buddha, loving kindness. Jesus, love. You know, that's their philosophy. You don't have to invent a new philosophy. 
you can borrow some of the greats. And when I say greats, I'm talking about those that have shifted the world. The 11 world religions have shifted the world. Check into those. There's something powerful in there. You know, whichever aspirational set of philosophies that you're ascribing to is essentially what religion is. You know, there's, there's a philosophical nature that is put into action. And you can also do the deep dive to say, okay, I want to I want to see organically how I would express mine. And so how do you do it? Write, listen, and talk. Whatever structures are best for you. For me, it's a combination of all three. I talk with wise men and women that I'm fortunate enough to have in my, in my life about the core principles that are unwavering to me until I get to some clarity. I write about it. To, it's a forcing function to choose words that like, is this the right word? And then I spend a lot of time being mindful and meditating to feel and listen and explore in that nature. And then essentially, you need to get it down on paper and pen and in a form, and it obviously can be digital, but in a form that is something you can say or certainly say, but move past memory into application. And the litmus test that I have for myself, and, and, and I want to share this with you, is can you get it out under duress in a dark alley at knife point. And if you've been in that situation, it's traumatic. I'm sorry to bring that up for you, but like, can you get it out at knife point? This is my philosophy. That's when you know you're on it. And it's not just something that you've memorized, but it is probably something under 20 words or 12 words that you could, you're so present with on a regular basis that it would eloquently pop out. So it goes from an intellectual exercise to a culling, a, a discipline to cull all of the words in your native tongue down to a handful that really get the core principles right for you, and then practicing it on a daily basis based on the words you choose or the thoughts you choose, the words you express, and the actions you take. So that's how you practice it. Absolutely phenomenal. And I will take action on it immediately as I finish up the book. Michael Gervais, it's been an absolute honor and a pleasure. Is there somewhere you'd like for our audience to go check out your stuff and compete to create? Yeah, thanks, mate. I'd love for you to, when you get yours dialed in, to, to tag me on social. I will. Yeah, let's do that. I so will. social is at Michael Gervais. Last name is spelled G-E-R-V-A-I-S. And then Compete to Create is you can find the book and our eight-week online course on mindset training. So that is at competetocreate.net. And then if you're interested in podcasts, you know, about mastery, we've got a podcast called Finding Mastery. And that's on findingmastery.net and all the players that you find podcasts with. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you so much for being here. I hope you loved the conversation with Michael Gervais. And if you did, definitely leave us a review. We would love to hear how you guys enjoyed it. I always love reading the reviews and I love hearing from you guys. If you haven't already connected with us in the Muscle Intelligence Facebook group, please do so. I'd love to hear from you. I'm in there as often as I can. I'm building a great team and a great community in there of like-minded people. Ultimately, it's not just about muscle, is it? It's about all the things that go into living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. And you know, building muscle is a piece of it. I think building muscle is a great vehicle to learn about yourself, to learn about discipline, to learn about integrity, to start connecting with your inside. So I've often expressed my belief that exercise should and can be a meditative experience. 
If you're going in the gym and you're turning your workout into something that's mindless, so you're zoning out and you're just getting it done or you're just gritting down and getting angry and getting pissed off and getting it done, you're literally anchoring that state and that's going to become more and more prevalent in your life outside of the gym. So my suggestion to all of us is learn to go inside, connect with your body, challenge your body, challenge focus. When it becomes hard, don't quit. Lean in, right? That's when we start to develop that neuroplasticity. And if you really want to start to change your brain and start to adapt so when things get hard, your natural default is I keep going. And not only do I keep going, but I keep going and I get better. I get better and better and better. I get more focused. And when I'm done, I smile. And I smile because that anchors my dopamine pathway and says, this is a reward. This is not a punishment. That's so important for you guys. And if you don't already do that, try it. Let me know how it goes because I've I've noticed personally and with hundreds of people now an exceptional benefit as far as your ability to appreciate going deeper into workouts and finding joy in that and actually anchoring it so that you want to go back into that place again. And the more you can learn to enjoy that place, the faster your results are going to be. A big piece of this muscle building endeavor, this life endeavor, is learning to lean in when it's hard, learning when you feel a little discomfort, knowing you're going to be okay. And there's some really interesting data around you know, this. the greatest opportunity for progress lives inside your greatest obstacle. And if you're someone who tends to avoid those obstacles, exercise is a really good opportunity to practice in a controlled environment, leaning in when it's uncomfortable. All right, take a breath, calm it down, keep going, keep going, keep going. That's the same in life. And when you when you do lean in, even if it's just that one extra minute, smile and reward yourself and congratulate yourself and say, hey, I, I wanted to quit and I kept going. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Another shout out to our sponsor, Blue Blocks. Thank you guys for supporting Blue Blocks. Thank you for Blue Blocks for supporting the podcast. B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Use the code MUSCLE. Get hooked up for you, your family, your friends. Feel free to share that code with anybody you know and love. And I appreciate you guys being here because I know you have a lot of options. So I'm super grateful for you giving me your time and ear. And always don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so we have immediate notifications around when this stuff drops. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.